Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 68 of the Sunday Punch podcast. We're here with uh, now a pretty regular guest, Aiden Grogan, back on the cast. And today we're going to be talking about um, the banking industry. You know, something super exciting for the people. Um, So yesterday I watched the first minute of your video before going to the gym. And you're talking about the international banking fraternity and you start off with the Rothschild family. And so I'm like, pause. I know where he's going the next 20 minutes with this. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to listen to a documentary on the Rothschild family, not a documentary, a, a podcast on the Rothschild family. I had two choices. One was like the conspiracy theory choice. I started off with that one. I didn't like the tone didn't like their voices. I was like, I can't trust these guys. I can't trust someone with a voice that I can't trust. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, it was just like an an annoying voice. So I was like, wait a second, let me go to the other one more historical. And uh, so I listened to two hours on the Rothschild family. I get back. Then I play your video again. And you, you, you talk about the Rothschild family for about 30 seconds and then you move on to JP Morgan and the central banks and the establishing of the federal reserve and then all of this other stuff. And I'm like, Oh God damn it. I just wasted all this time on the European family who established, you know, basically established the first kind of connected system where they could figure out all of the communication before anyone else and give them a heads up on investment opportunities. But I, I listened to the Rothschild. I want to I want to just tell you what I know from my two hours yesterday, and then you hit me up with um, what you know, and then we can move on and we can go into all this other stuff. But I thought it was highly interesting. Um, the uh, patriarch, um, what's his name? Mayor Mayor yeah. Rothschild. Yeah. You know, basically starts off this business this banking business in frankfurt germany and you know super even at that time was super anti-jewish but you know he just kept going going he lived in a very small place in the in the what did they call that the juden juden something whatever the village was that was jewish in frankfurt and uh he was just dedicated to the work um he was making connections by selling uh, rare gem or rare coins and uh, and other you know rare memorabilia. Um, so he's making international connections by doing that. And so I think he befriended then some sort of duke. <laughs> Again, I, I've I listened to this for two hours. This is like first time through. He befriended a duke near Frankfurt who then entrusted him with his business. And then he backed the coalition against the French, this Duke, and then they lost. And so he had to go in exile and trusted all of his money with um, Mayor Rothschild. And so Rothschild then was like hiding this from the French government, blah, 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 and just kind of was a trustworthy guy in that sense. And, uh, and then his children, you know, he, as you move on through the story, 
he figures out that financing, you know, the right people in the war makes him the most money of all. And so when his children come of age, they then go off to, he sends them each off into a different uh, section. I believe it was Vienna. Do you know all of them? Yeah, it was Vienna, Paris, uh, Naples, London, and uh, Frankfurt. I might be missing one. Uh, but yeah, Frankfurt's where they started. But every every major European city. Your uh, your mic is is messing up a bit. Oh really? Try turn yeah. Try turning on your uh, turning off and on your um, headphones real quick. Let's see here. And then do another test. Go again. If you can still hear me, try exiting out of the room and then coming back in. All right, well, while Aiden's doing that, let me keep going on the Rothschild family because this is what I know. He sent out all of his sons to all these different regions. Actually, let me look it up here because I want to get the history right. Okay. He sent out his sons... To Vienna, Naples. Well, okay, so he had four sons. Amschel, Solomon, Nathan, and Carl. Now, according to my historian, Nathan was the main man of those brothers. Carl was not very good, but probably among standards today, probably a complete genius. Um, and so then he uh, established banking um, branches in London, Paris, Vienna, and Naples. So what they could do with that is they could then, oh, here's Aiden. They could then get the information way faster than any of the other banks. And so they'd make wise investments. And then that made them a tremendous amount of money. All right, try now. I think this is good, right? Yep. Yep. All right. Good. Okay. So I just established... Um, that they sent they sent out the sons to London, Paris, Vienna, and Naples. It was Amschel, Solomon, Nathan, and Carl. And the historian that I was listening to said Nathan was like the main man, didn't care about anything but work. And then Carl was kind of like the, oh, okay, there's Carl. But anyways, what they were able to do with that is they would know in each war, each battle, anything about the British pound, anything about the currency that was going up or down. And then through, um, what do they call that when, um, arbitrage? I have no idea. Uh, okay. Basically, you know, when a currency is about, you know, let's say the pound is 90 cents to the dollar or whatever, they could then easily make up that 10 cents because they had the information. And so yeah. they would just completely build the wealth from there. And they had all the information faster than anyone. And so that's kind of how they went on. The only mistake that they made was they expanded throughout Europe, but they never made inroads um, with the U S that was one of their biggest mistakes. It says, yeah. and then as you move on, the sons do their thing. They become, Nathan becomes the richest man of human history. 
Now you have to compare that to GDP. He he had half a percent of total GDP, which has never even been close to being touched, not even by Bezos, Musk, no one has come close to having that percentage. So mm-hmm. Nathan was the richest human being ever. And and according to this historian, it'll never even be close to, to that amount of wealth. So then the Rothschild, they had all of this, but then generations of kids, you know, they're each in separate sections. They don't really know each other that well anymore. And then there's always going to be the people that are the kids that grew up in wealth. So they had no drive to learn. And then the Rothschilds, because generation, generation keep going, they lose innovation. They're not going after business anymore. And then they kind of dwindle, but it lasts 200 years, which I think was pretty cool. Yeah. So I'll, you got into really where it started in the early 19th century and I'll, pick up at the end of the 19th century where it gets important in the context of what's going on today. So, and, and as, as this relates to the Rothschilds. So at the end of the 19th century in Britain, this guy, Cecil Rhodes, who made his fortune in gold in South Africa creates a secret society, which is very much the elites of high finance, politics, business, and he brings in Lord Rothschild, which that was the official title he went by, uh, the, uh, his actual name. I believe it was Baron. Um, and so the goal of this secret society, which was called the Society of the Elect, was to basically take over the world through the British Empire. So they supported British imperialism and wanted to sort of civilize the whole world. And this is what motivated British colonization of Africa and other places. And then, um, so then you have World War One, which was an effort by Britain to knock Germany off the world stage. That's why they formed the Triple Entente with Russia and France. And we're looking basically for an excuse to go to war with Germany. And uh, the best part about a war if you're in the political establishment and the business establishment is you get to arrange post-war society to your own liking. So that was the first, the post-war world war one era was the first shot at establishing this world government. Um, but at the time it was going to be a, a British federation, uh, a British, uh, world order. And, um, so, Cecil Rhodes has, again, the Society of the Elect and then an outer ring called the Association of Helpers. And they establish in 1921 something called the Royal Institute of International Affairs, which is very much linked up closely with the banking elites of London. And then in the United States, they create the Council on Foreign Relations, which is just the American branch of the Royal Institute of International Affairs. And according to this historian, Carol Quigley, who wrote a book called Tragedy and Hope, the CFR, Council on Foreign Relations, was a front for J.P. Morgan and company. Mm-hmm. So you have this, what, what you call the Anglo-American establishment, these elites of finance, politics, all kind of working together behind the scenes to create this world system. And um, the whole point of this secret society of Cecil Rhodes 
and and Lord Rothschild, Lord Milner, all these guys was to gradually bring the American Republic back into the British Empire. So that was the purpose of the Council on Foreign Relations. And to this day, with NATO and other agreements that are Anglo-American led, you fundamentally see that that Britain and America are pretty much aligned on all the major foreign policy decisions. So de facto, the U.S. was merged with the U.K. again through these these banking groups. And um, one thing I'll say about World War One is the 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 international bankers gave huge loans to the Entente powers to defeat Germany and Austria-Hungary and the Ottoman Empire. And in 1917, things weren't looking good for the Entente powers. So the motivation to get the United States into the war was the international bankers wanting to protect their loans to the Entente powers. Because if if Britain and France lost the war, uh, well, then those bankers wouldn't get a good return on their investments. So the U.S. literally went to war to secure the investments of international bankers. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, and then... So the, the last thing I'll say about this international banking fraternity, well, actually, we got to get into the Federal Reserve. So if, if, if you want to add in anything after that, before we get into the Fed. Well, OK, I'm just trying to understand. So how did the council like what spurred the council for foreign? Uh, what was the name? Council on Foreign Relations. Yeah. So what spurred? All right. We need a council on foreign relations. Like what was like the driver? Well, it's it's this this idea that we're going to we're going to have a, a think tank to, mm -hmm. to discuss foreign policy. And, and so if you go on the Council on Foreign Relations website or YouTube page, you'll get all these very propagandistic videos about how it's just a forum for informal discussions. And but if mm -hmm. you look at who's members, it's all the Fortune 500 CEOs, all the secretaries of state, the secretaries of defense, a lot of the presidents. It's it's a huge club for these elites, and it doesn't matter what whether they're Republican or Democrat. They're all part of this Council on Foreign Relations. It's it's sort of America's secret government. And even Hillary Clinton gave a speech one time uh, when she I think when she was Secretary of State and said how uh, the council's just down the street, so we can ask them for advice. Their current president, Richard Haas, is on cable news all the time discussing American strategy with Russia and Syria. So basically that, okay, so it was just, whose idea was it to be like, all right, guys, we need a council on foreign relations. We need all of the biggest companies, all of the smartest, you know, all of the maybe elites, but it sounds like a bunch of smart people to st kind of strategize on uh, how we deal with uh, foreign entities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it goes back to the secret society of Cecil Rose, the society of the elect. So, but he, he dies in 1902 or 1903, but uh, before he dies, they established the Rhodes scholarship at Oxford, which was to yeah. bring in American elites so they could get on board with the whole agenda. And um, so there was this guy named Lionel Curtis, who was a British diplomat politician and he was part of Rhodes Society of the Elect, and he spearheaded the creation of the Royal Institute of International Affairs and the Council on Foreign Relations. So it's it, the idea that we need this is is just this British agenda to establish a front in every country that would then be sort of the the hub 
for for influence over that country's political system. Uh, but if you look up the, the official history of the Council on Foreign Relations on Wikipedia, it'll tell you that Woodrow Wilson created it. They're not going to you're not going to hear anything about this this guy, Lionel Curtis. And he openly advocated for world government. He after World War One, actually it was in 1940, he said nothing can solve the problems we are now facing except a world government behold not beholden to states but to all people fitted for the trust so okay. this idea that these experts are just going to run the world as they see fit and of course those experts always end up being members of the international banking fraternity so why why would a world government it seems like the communication of a world government would be a pro not a con well if if you are a progressive person who thinks that uh, more international cooperation would bring about better safety and security. Well, that seems quite logical. And in fact, any practical person would support an organization like the the UN to settle international disputes so that we're not plunged into world wars every 20 years. Right. But the problem is who would want a world government that's run by experts so-called experts who are part of who who work for goldman sachs or work for uh google it's it's so that it's it's fundamentally not democratic it's it's what you call a technocracy you're ruled by skilled experts who Mm -hmm. all know each other they all go to the same universities they belong to the same secret societies which which by the way do do exist and uh so, it, but it's it all comes back to the finances, and I think this is where we could get into the creation of the Federal Reserve and how the whole central banking system works. So, just to be clear, none of these people in the council are voted on; they're just kind of assigned by the prior members. They they it's it's invitation only. So you can go request to join the Council on Foreign Relations, but they're not going to let you in. So, but if you if if you grew up on Long Island and you went to Yale and uh, you were part of the Wolf's Head Secret Society and you go on to work at Goldman Sachs and then you get a job at the Pentagon, you'll probably get an invitation. But if you grow up in the Midwest and you went to uh, I don't know. Uh, university of illinois at chicago and then you work for some firm in the suburbs uh you're not going to be a member of the council on foreign relations it's it's for their club as as the comedian george carlin said it's a big club and you ain't in it right so i guess would you have would you be into it if if there was a vote what do you mean would you be into it if there was a vote? like the people voted for the Council of Foreign Relations. So you're saying if if the American you would run for vote, it, yeah. Well, I, I <laughs> well, it's it's fundamentally not democratic because it's a, it's because it's not it's not government. It's not a government agency. It's a think tank. It's private. So it's okay. it's, it's they advise political leaders. You know. Can you expand a little bit? What did you say? The Wolf Secret Society. Uh, yeah, Yale has all these really weird secret societies, Skull and Bones, where they—I mean—that's—that's—that's—that's that's, that's that's something for another podcast, <laughs> Skull okay. and Bones. But what Wolf's Head, uh, Scroll and Key, all these weird—I'm just—I'm just giving an example of of how our ruling class works. If you if you do research into these politicians, these corporate executives, you notice it's like they all go to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, 
MIT, Georgetown, University of Chicago, whatever. And and they're they're all seem to be members of secret fraternities. Now, not like the fraternities that you'll find at a state school in the Midwest where they just kind of get drunk and party, but but fraternities where they take it very, very seriously. There's no frat boy shenanigans. It's like secret handshakes and and it's it's their their ticket into uh America's ruling elite. Mm-hmm. So, so they now, make these lifelong connections. Now, wouldn't you say that you have to be very strict and serious and kind of maybe a little bit weird to achieve that greatness to then get into one of these? Like, you don't want me, you don't want me like showing up and being like, wait, I thought we were just like a drinking club. Like, don't don't you want the Council on Foreign Relations to be kind of these like super focused uh have to get into a super uh smart school even though you know we could get into nepotism and stuff like that about getting into these universities but well well the the idea that there are these super focused disciplined elites is of course not true because okay although although their secret societies when they do business might be serious they they have their nice after parties where they dress up like druids and and worship the Canaanite god of child sacrifice. So, I, you know, if, 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 if it's a choice between that and a few guys in some small town in Illinois who like to drink Bud Light, you know, I, 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 I can't relate to the people who dress up like druids and worship Moloch. Okay. All right. So we have this council. All right. Now let's get into the Federal Reserve and what the connection is. Yes. So... Uh, by it's the United States Constitution requires that the currency of the United States is issued by Congress. We'll just establish that right away. So, the idea of establishing a privately run central bank in this country was very controversial. They tried to do it under President Andrew Jackson, and mm-hmm. uh, that's a history to to get into another time. But by 1910, after a few panics, which were probably artificially created, uh, then it came time to have this central bank. Well, let's talk about the panics, Mm -hmm. okay? Because that was a big problem. People would panic. They pull all of their money out of the bank, therefore ruining the bank, therefore ruining everyone else's savings. That or natural disaster or, you know, some sort of... uh, revolution some whatever it was right literally an, an entire economy could be ruined by panic and fear so we needed some sort of system well it, it's it's like you you replace one bad system with another is essentially what happens so i, you, I think we need to expand for anyone who's listening like what you mean by the the panics and what you mean and like basically back in the day you know all these banks would go out of business you couldn't trust a bank and literally once someone got the the sniff of something going wrong with the bank they pull their money out which would then ruin it for everyone else yeah well but that that stuff happened in the even after the federal reserve as well but but you have you you have this this idea that uh 
after the, a few of these panics that um, we'll establish a central bank and that will properly regulate our currency. So regardless if, if there's no, if there's the thing like you can make the argument for a central bank and I I'm fine with there being a central bank, but it has to be government run. You, you can't you don't want the elites of Goldman Sachs and Citibank running your central bank. And that's what we have in the United States. So and, and that's how it works everywhere. So in 1910, uh, a few elite banking families, you have Rockefellers who had started off in oil but entered banking mm -hmm. vanderlip uh warburg who were german immigrants and uh a few others meet at jekyll island off the coast mm -hmm. of georgia to right. plan out a a central bank that would issue u.s currency and this was a total secret meeting they didn't tell the press where they were going they claimed actually that there was going to be a hunting expedition but they they didn't they, tell they didn't they weren't in communication with uh the u.s government no no this is this is this was just a bunch of private bankers well JP actually morgan actually, i take them. that back you had they had nelson aldrich there who was a u.s senator and he was okay. sort of rock he was actually i believe he was the nephew of john d rockefeller the second he was he was I, he was family tied to the Rockefellers and he was basically their man in the Senate who was going to get this bill passed. So they plan out the federal okay. reserve. It's going to be a central bank, but they create all the various member banks to disguise the fact that it's one highly centralized bank because American people are very suspicious of, of large concentrations of power. So it's planned so they out. all meet. Does they all meet all of the, okay. So just the timeline here, panics keep ruining banks well so, it wasn't it wasn't like it wasn't a ton of panics there was a couple and if you you could look deep into the history of that and and there's some evidence to suggest that they were artificially created by the elites oh they create the problem and then they come in with the solution right so what for example what would be a created panic well it's just like what the what the hedge funds guys do today where they 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 say, "Oh, that that stock's gonna, that stock's gonna crash or something like that," and then they they bet the opposite way and right. So they release it to the media. The media right. releases yeah. it to us, and yeah. they meanwhile are the puppet masters above. Okay, mm -hmm. so let's say that they are artificially doing this. People still are panicking. Banks are, you know, you say a few, a couple of banks go under. Everyone's life savings is ruined. It happens a few times. They're like, wait a second, we can't keep doing this. We need some sort of protection for these banks. So JP Morgan, a couple other high profile names, as you mentioned, get together on Jekyll Island, who you're saying that they did not talk to the US government about this. It was not, it was it was a secret meeting. It was not like they were appointed to to as to be the experts who would figure out the financial situation. This was JP this was, Morgan was like, I know some guys. We're gonna get together. But they didn't they didn't they didn't tell the US government that. They just okay. brought they brought along Senator Nelson Aldrich again, who's just Rockefeller's man in the Senate, because they needed someone there who was gonna get the bill passed. So they write up the the whole bill. And you think uh, this could happen today? I'm sure it happens all the time. <laughs> that's how no, that's like, how like did people works. did people back then 
know that they were going to Jekyll Island. I mean, Jekyll oh. Island, by the way, beautiful this time of year. Um, did they know they were going to Jekyll Island and then no. hashing this out to be like, how do we create this where the people trust us? Because we're going to need multiple banks throughout the country to kind of sign on. Right. They, you need you. Uh, how many banks? Is it 12 banks? 12 around member the banks. Country? Yeah. But, it's, but banks. that's all that's all done to to make it look like it's not just run out of the New York Fed. Like you look at all the Federal Reserve buildings. They're just buildings. The D.C. one looks like a government building. But then the New York building looks like a prison. And I put that in the documentary. And that's where it's run out of. Obviously, that's the that's the hub of the Federal Reserve. And they've got all this gold from all over the world stored there in these vaults um and it's like it's it looks like a top security prison mm -hmm. <laughs> well they, okay so you needed all these banks to get on board to kind of protect from the panics now but they they have like some southern banks in there don't they like they wanted to even it out so that the people that are in the midwest and everything else yeah, could trust it there's a Federal Reserve in Chicago. There's one in uh, there's one somewhere in Texas. It might be Dallas, um, Missouri. Yeah, they're yeah they're they're spread evenly out. Uh, but to get back to the the Jekyll Island meeting, so they they basically write up the whole bill, and they or they plan it out, and the bill is written over the course of the next couple of years. But it slipped into passing. A couple of days before Christmas in 1913, when most congressmen were at home with their families, and they didn't even vote on it. Well, they voted on it, but most congressmen didn't vote because they weren't there. And then Wilson signed it into passing, and and so that and then so at that point, you have a central bank that is mm -hmm. effectively run by private banking interests, the interests of Wall Street, and and so here's here's the whole motivation for it, and you could read about this in ron paul's book and the fed i don't agree with ron paul and everything but he does a pretty good history of the federal reserve in this book the whole point well, Fed, of it, sorry you, you cut out there for a second what's the book it's called and the fed by ron okay. paul got it and so essentially the, the purpose of the federal reserve is to provide a monetary safety net for the largest banks and corporations should their businesses ever fail so there will be this yeah, you, central. Yeah, you keep cutting out. Oh, really? Yeah. You look like you were freezing up a little bit, too. All right. So you said the purpose of the Federal Reserve. That's the last part I heard. Okay. So it's, it's, it's essentially a monetary safety net for the largest banks and corporations. If, if, if they give out real risky loans and go under the Federal Reserve will be there to bail them out. And that's exactly what happened after the 2008 financial crisis. And also, what, what people don't understand what the Federal Reserve does, it gives loans to the federal government. Mm -hmm. And how does the federal government pay back the loan to the central bank? Well, they have to impose a tax on the people. So right. in the same year that the Federal Reserve is established, 1913, there's also the Federal Income Tax Amendment. <laughs> we, that can't be a coincidence right and so so it's like it, it, and people think it's government run because the name is federal reserve but well don't you they, they, there is a federal reserve then own council and the president can only appoint 
one person per four years. Yeah. So there is like a kind of checks and balances there. Right. Yeah. So, so it's, it's Ron Paul says it's not necessarily correct to just say it's totally private. I wouldn't say it's totally private. It's a public private partnership. So it's, it's, it's like the, the private sphere and the public sphere sort of shaking hands and, and just like the Jekyll Island meetings, an example, you have mostly private bankers, but then you got the one U.S. Senator there. So it's this sort of merging of, of private and public power and, and who claim to be the experts, but it's like who, who the president appoints to is, is, is treasury secretary and who he appoints to the federal reserve. You always see that they, they, go in and out of government and private business. So Trump's treasury secretary was Steve Mnuchin, who was Goldman Sachs executive and also went to Yale and was a member of Skull and Bones. So that's, that's essentially how it works. And, but, but the, the, yeah, the key about the federal reserve is, is really the two things that it's, it's, it lends money to the government at interest and they have to impose a tax on the people to, to get a return and then also that it's it's a monetary safety net for the largest banks and corporations who can get bailed out because they're too big to fail supposedly. So but mm-hmm. what you know the people conservatives who say that that this is socialism we're living under socialism it's almost like reverse socialism where they're robbing the working class through the Federal Reserve and they're they're giving their money to their to their criminal friends on Wall Street. Right. So what would be the solution for this? The solution is to is to nationalize the Federal Reserve and 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 because it's like if you try if you outright abolish the Federal Reserve, that would inevitably create some crisis in the financial system. So they'd be real risky. The best thing to do is 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 you have to you have to ensure that Congress has the exclusive authority to issue and regulate our nation's currency. And that means that Congress has to, like, be smart and. You know, can you you picture AOC trying to figure out how to issue our nation's currency and what the interest rate should be? She wouldn't have right. a clue. But so it's like uh, as a vital prerequisite to serving in Congress, you should actually understand your nation's currency system. But the, the people in Congress, they don't have a clue. They'll never criticize the Federal Reserve. They don't know how it works anyway. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I guess we could see a little bit of this in the 2008 when that crisis happened. Um, so they had to essentially back everything up or else we would have crashed. Should we have just let some of the banks fail completely I believe uh, during so, that yeah. time? Yeah. Let Goldman Sachs fail, let Chase fail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then what, but what would have been some of the repercussions of that? Well, I yeah, again, I'm not I'm not a I'm not a financial expert, so I can't I can't properly forecast what would happen. But it, it's I don't know. I, I, it's just it's like you you have a you have a system that's based on this fiat currency, this this paper money that's not worth anything. It's not backed by gold, and mm-hmm. and if that's how the whole world's financial system has operated for over a hundred years, the difficulty is that how do you even transition out of that? It has to be a very slow and careful process. So I don't, I don't even have a solution. I just know generally the history of it and how the system worked. And this is what I wanted to read from this book, Tragedy and Hope by, by Carol Quigley, where he, he talks about the aim of the financial capitalists. 
He says, the powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled in a feudalist fashion by the central banks of the world acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent meetings and conferences. The apex of the system was to be the bank for international settlements in Basel, Switzerland, a private bank owned and controlled by the world central banks, which were themselves private corporations. Each central bank sought to dominate its government by its ability to control treasury loans, to manipulate foreign exchanges, to influence the level of economic activity in the country, and to influence cooperative politicians by subsequent economic rewards in the business world. Okay, so, can you explain that to me like I'm a child, right. which is basically so, what I am? What he's saying is these international financial capitalists wanted to create a world system, a world government of total financial control in a in a feudalist fashion, he says. So not this is you know, we think of capitalism as freedom. Feudalism is where you are a serf, you are completely owned. Mm -hmm. And by the center, so he says this system was to be controlled in a feudalist fashion by the central banks of the world acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent meetings and conferences. So all this stuff, like, like the Jekyll Island meeting, it's done in secret, these secret shady agreements that they make behind the scenes. And again, he says uh, financial control in private hands, private hands, mm -hmm. not, not, not government, central bank, not, not public authority. And, so he, he talks about the Bank for International Settlements. Now, that was set up under something called uh, the Young Plan, which was a, basically a program for Wall Street banks to provide huge loans to Germany after World War I so they could build up their industrial production, uh, get their economy moving, etc. And to assist with that, they created the Bank for International Settlements in, in Basel, which would shift money from, from one country's account to another. And that is the nucleus of the world's financial system, this fiat debt-based currency model that we have. So you have the Federal Reserve, England, you have the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, which is the central central bank of the European Union, but it's all centered in the Bank for International Settlements. That's where it all comes to its its nucleus. And, and then he says that it, it is a private bank owned and controlled by the world central banks, which were themselves private corporations. So he doesn't even say they're public-private partnerships. He says they're all just private corporations. Mm -hmm. And by the way, this guy, this historian, Carol Quigley, was Bill Clinton's mentor. So he, he was an insider. He knew how it all worked. He had access to the Council on Foreign Relations and Royal Institute of International Affairs documents and he just thought that this information shouldn't be kept so secret. We should tell the public kind of how the system works. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm uh, I'm actually very interested in this now. Um, if you uh, haven't seen it, there is a Google talk on uh, how all of the banks uh, around the world, the central banks in each country have kind of colluded together to since 2008 um, to just keep kind of issuing currency. And there's kind of no end in sight with interest rates being low because they can't because in the short term, people freak out, even though it's a terrible long term plan and that there may be a giant 
you've never even seen, couldn't even comprehend crash coming in our future. Um, where she really, and she does a Google talk and she doesn't have any solutions either. So it's a very complicated subject, but I I've become very interested in it. Just be preparing for this podcast from yesterday. So I'm going to keep, um, I'm going to keep uh, researching it and I'll definitely be reading those books. I definitely want to read the Ron Paul book. That yeah, that, that one's, this one's definitely good to know about the fed and it's not too long either. It's only 210 pages. Uh, this okay. book, Tragedy and Hope, is is one thousand three hundred pages. I'm almost done with it finally after a year, but uh, <laughs> he has a few sections just devoted to financial capitalism and how the system actually works. Well, I guess you know we went off the gold standard in 1970, whatever, when Nixon took us off. But yeah, it's all made up anyway. I know. Yeah, so it's like. I think personally that having your nation's currency backed by gold would be better than having it backed by nothing. And as a historical example of this, at the start of World War One, every European power was on the gold standard. But due to the heavy cost of war, the financial resources, meaning the gold reserves of every country, would have been exhausted in six months. So every country ditched the gold standard yeah. and the bankers would rub their grimy hands together because now there was no limitations on how many loans and how large of loans they would give to various governments. So, right. so you know, so it's like you there's there is a case to be made for gold because I think it's it's better than what we have now. But of course, it's not a solution. No, I think, well, in the Google talk, she was saying we can't go back to the gold standard. Too many people. It doesn't make any sense, but you could have some sort of hybrid model. Um, I don't know. You got to listen to the Google talk. It was really good. Yeah. Um, even though Google is obviously part of the Illuminati. Don't li- actually, never mind. Don't listen to the Google talk. <laughs> Google, Google was the creation of the CIA. <laughs> well, what I will say is this is what makes cryptocurrency very interesting to me because it's like we all just agreed, oh, okay, there's a finite amount of cryptocurrency. And we like that there is only a finite amount. And now now we're all agreeing that this is worth something. Mm-hmm. And it's just like everyone's mind kind of coming together at the same time. So, you know, it's like anything else. You need to have, you know, diversify your portfolio, you have bonds, stocks, and cryptocurrency should be in everyone's portfolio. To me, if everything fucks up, don't you want the the thing that's actually protected and is only a finite amount? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, well, the 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 various forms of cryptocurrency, I I'm not even I haven't even looked too much into them, uh, but I, I just don't I don't see any of that lasting in the end because they're gonna they're gonna want one world digital currency system that's gonna be tied to your biometric identification and if you don't do what the government tells you, then you won't buy or sell. And that's 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 the model that's being promoted by you keep breaking up. I oh, think man. this is my problem. I think I was on the wrong Wi Fi the entire time. Oh I'm a fucking idiot. It's okay. We got enough. We got enough nuggets in there. I think for the people. Oh yeah. Um, all right. We're at forty-five minutes. I think that was pretty good. Yeah. I'm. I'm. I'm gonna keep re- researching. Hey, by the way, you should uh, listen to. Um, it's called. Uh, uh, 
the wealthiest family in the world or something. Just look up Rothschild on Spotify. It's the number one result. Mm-hmm. And this guy always is like obsessed with like successful people. And so he does like one every like four months. He, he like he does a deep dive in research and then he does a podcast. So it's really good. Check it out. Um, when do you want to meet again, dog? Couple weeks, maybe the first week of the new year, new year. or something. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Um, we'll discuss. We'll discuss after this episode what we want to talk about. But always enjoy having you on the show, man. I'm gonna. Uh, what time is it? Eleven fourteen. I'm gonna get ready for some NFL football here, and, uh, and then I'm gonna get back to studying the Federal Reserve because that's <laughs> what I like to do. All right, it's Sunday morning here on the Sunday Punch Podcast, but as we all know, it's always Friday night. Friday night, I'm thinking that we just might fly away to someplace they don't know who we are. Now I'm riding shotgun in your car We drive through the city like explorers going 65 Flowing hair flying across your face We left on Friday, now it's Saturday Press jeans buttoned up, jeans iron slipping up Red shoes walking slow, headphones blaring three stacks Sunglasses flaring out, thick watch hanging low Studded belt pulled taut, three stacks on the radio Friday night, I'm thinking that we just might Run away to some place we we can be who we are. We can be who we are.